Welcome to SECC. We pray that you are blessed today as you listen. Today's reading is taken from Isaiah, chapter 7, verses 1 to 15. It can be found on page 691 in the Pew Bibles. The sign of Emmanuel. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shear Jazub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool, on the road to the washerman's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, and of the son of Remalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Remalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart, and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place, it will not happen, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. Thanks be to God for this reading. Amen. Thanks, Francis. So it's a, a good reading. Um, we're working our way through a sort of an Advent series. Um, I have a feeling I've read this last year, but I'll read it again. It's been 12 months. I'm sure you've forgotten. Um, well, this is what somebody wrote. Um, if our greatest need has been information, God would have sent an educator. If, are, if your greatest need had been technology, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, and so God sent a saviour. Um, I like that. This is probably why I read it last year as well. Um, 
We're carrying our series, uh, which is Prepare for the King, our Advent series. Of course, next week uh, we won't be having a sermon. It's going to be our uh, nativity service, but I should drop an email to you tomorrow morning with some more details. But essentially, just come next week dressed as your favorite nativity character. Um, uh, or at the very least, a bit of tinsel around your head, so you show a bit of willing. But that's next week. We did it a few years ago, and it's the same, same format. Uh, unless we're in Plan Z by then, in which case we might all be watching it in, a, in an individual bubble somewhere. Um, but that's next week. But we, this is essentially our last talk in this series. And actually, what we've been seeing in uh, our series is this tension between what we think we need as human beings and what God knows we need as human beings. We often think we know what we need. We think we know the kind of person we should be following or the idea we should be adhering to or the opinions we should have. But that tension between what we think we know and God's perfect knowledge that actually every single one of us needs his son is that tension across the Bible from beginning to end, essentially. Uh, human, humanity constantly pushing back on God's perfect knowledge that we need his son because we believe we know what's best for us. Human beings are terrible at knowing what is best for themselves, as I'm sure you've, you're well aware in your own life and that of other people. We've been looking at various verses in these last couple of weeks. Um, and Advent is, of course, about the arrival. The word Advent means arrival. We looked at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and then last week, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And today, really, it's chapter 7, verse 14 of Isaiah. Uh, but what I found amazing reflecting on these uh, three talks um, that we've heard in these last couple of weeks is that uh, each of them tell us something different about this coming Messiah, this coming king that the Bible has been promising from day one, really. Uh, this king is going to come, this special one's going to arrive, and he's going to bring re- redemption for all people um, that want, want it and actually choose him. And what's really fascinating is that we get a different part of what this uh, promised one is going to do. Genesis 3.15 tells us he's going to come and he's just going to flat out crush evil. He's going to stamp on it. Uh, He's going to suffer as well. Uh, Micah 5.2 tells us that he's going to be this king, like in the line of David, a king from eternity, God's king, uh, God as a king. And then today we get this wonderful verse that's familiar to all of us in Isaiah 7.14, that he is going to be Emmanuel, the baby Emmanuel, born to a virgin, which means God with us. He's going to crush evil. He's going to be a king from eternity. He's going to be God with us. What an amazing baby in the manger. What an amazing God we serve and we follow. And what I find really incredible is that each one of those messianic promises, each one of those hopes that we have in this arriving baby, who of course was born 2,000 years ago, but we still wait for his second coming, his second advent, if you like, is that each one of these promises is delivered to God's people in a time of trouble. Either enemies surrounding them, like in this story, or uh, personal sin, or just having mucked it up and completely turned away from God. Each time we're at our worst, God appears to deliver the most wonderful promises of the coming Redeemer for all humanity. And there's a lesson there, I think, for us as Christians. There's a lesson there for all people, that we often think when we're at our worst, we're most hopeless. But actually, when we're most hopeless, we then become most hopeful, because it's there that God gives us the message of hope for the future and the present. G.K. Chesterton um, said this, Hope means hoping when things are hopeless, or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. In other words, the hope we have in Christ comes alive when we are hopeless in the situations we face. If you're hopeless this morning at home or here, if you feel full of less, without any hope or strength to go forward, it's now 
But if you rest in Christ, you rest in God, you will know his hope and his goodness. So today's passage from the book of Isaiah, or the scroll of Isaiah, if you want to be particularly um, uh, strict about it, um, really is about this uh, surprising announcement of God's grace and God's glory towards these rebellious people. The writing of Isaiah is essentially that. They're really terrible, they've turned their back from God, but God surprisingly announces to this rebellious people that he himself is going to be gracious towards them and love them and bring them home. The book is about the restoration of God's people, even though they've turned their back on him, and central to that. That surprising announcement in Isaiah is this news of this baby, this baby Emmanuel, which of course was for them then, but has these future connotations for us who will be born afterwards, that despite our sin and the consequences that follow, we can all be forgiven and we can all be brought home again. So uh, Isaiah 7 is a well-known passage, um, and actually I gave the wrong passage to Francis, it stopped a bit early, um, but really it was just to get the, the wider context of verse 14, because what tends to happen at Christmas is we take verse 14, you know, the virgin will be with child and be a sign for you, Emmanuel, God with us, we take that and we rip it out of its historical context and we uh, put a nice little uh, Christmassy scene around it, and that becomes uh, for us, we make it about us, understandably, because it is about us, but it's also got a historical part of it, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 in fact let me read verse 14 again it says therefore the lord himself will give you a sign the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him emmanuel we grab that and we say well that's about jesus so christmas has come let's celebrate that and think about that but actually there's a lot of lessons in the historical context of when that verse was first said by isaiah by god and actually uh the, the, the sort of historical context is quite upsetting because God's people in the book of Isaiah have absolutely turned their back on the God they promised never to. They promised they would be holy like he was holy. They promised that they would obey his laws. They promised that they would not turn and worship other gods, but they've done all of it. They've sinned against God. They're divided in half as a nation. There's a north and a south divide more serious than what there might be in this country from time to time. Um, And it's been led by a successive selection of bad kings. And one such bad king is King Ahaz, a man who was awful, who sacrificed his own son in the fiery reading kings. He led his people to sin. He led his people away from God. And the consequence of his actions and their actions is that they're now surrounded by the northern part, Israel, and Syria as well, threatening to overtake them, invade them. And attack them. And the first historical lesson from this promise in Isaiah 7, verse 14, is that sin has consequences, that sin has, uh, has a, a thing that comes back to us. Actions have consequences. Things happen when we break God's laws. We may not be surrounded by Israel and Syria threatening to invade us, but when we sin, when we deliberately turn our back on the things of God, there is always a consequence. Even if it is just simply that we have to live with bad decision making. We have to live with the consequences between ourselves, but we break our relationship with God as a sin has a consequence. For Israel, the consequence was direct punishment within time by God because they broke that covenant. And for us, we're not kind of punished by God directly for our sin within our lives. But the Bible does promise us that one day every single one of us will stand before his throne, Christian and non-Christian, believer and non-believer. And all of us will face the consequences for our sin. If we've turned our back and rebelled against God, then there will be a consequence, an eternal one. But if we ask forgiveness from Christ, there will be an eternal blessing of being in heaven. 
And that's why Christ matters so much, because he's the only one who is able to pay the cost, pay the consequence on our behalf so that we can be forgiven on, on the day of judgment. It will be for us like a day of blessing, because we'll be welcomed home by our Father into his kingdom. But more than that, this historical context uh, has another lesson about God's character. We've seen that God's people are awful. God's people have turned their back on him and let God down. But then we see something about God's character. Because at this stage in Israel's history, you wouldn't blame God for saying enough's enough. I'm done with all of you. You've broken my laws over and over and over. But God sends Isaiah and his son, whose name I'm not going to try and pronounce. um, He sends his son all the way to Ahaz. What's interesting is his son's name translates a remnant shall return or remnant is saved. So there's always this message of hope. That's why he takes his son with him. But he brings this message. He says in verse 4, don't fear. I'll read it again. It says, do, be, be careful. Keep calm. Do not be afraid. Do not lose heart because of those two smoldering stubs of firewood on their fierce anger. Do not be afraid. He sends this message. This man has turned his back on God. But God sends this message of hope. Don't fear for what's coming. And in verse 7 to 9, he says, this will not take place. It will not happen. The head of Aram is Damascus. The head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. That of Ephraim is Samaria. That of Samaria is only Ramallah's son. So in other words, don't fear now and don't fear the future. Because in 65 years, these enemies will have come to absolutely nothing. The second lesson in that passage from this historical context is that we may be bad, but God's character is good when we're bad. The third lesson from the historical context of that verse is the human failing. Human frailty and human failings are all over the Bible for us to see. Never should we ever think that we are perfect. Only God is perfect. So Isaiah goes with his son and he says to him, don't worry, God's going to do something amazing. And then he says to him, ask God for a sign. Now, if you're anything like me, I would have loved to have been asked what he's asked, King Ahaz. It says, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heaven. I'd have been like, well, Lord, turn the sky purple, um, make the seas treacle or something like that. You just ask something ridiculous because he's got this scope. Ask for anything, anything. Lord, make the sun go backwards. Do something, let me walk on water. Let that be a sign. He's given this chance to ask for anything. Is the deepest depths and the highest heavens. And yet Ahaz refuses. He's asked to think outside the box for a sign from God. And he says in verse 12, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And I feel bad about what I was going to say then because I think he's clearly more humble, more spiritual than I am. But what Ahaz has here is false humility. He's not humble at all. Because actually what the lesson here is, is about trust. Because what Ahaz has already decided, seeing those two nations attacking him or about to attack him, he's already decided not to trust God. He has already decided to ask the Assyrians for help. If you were to go to 2 Kings 16, 1-9, you would read the account of him rushing to the king of Assyria and asking for help. In fact, it gets even worse because Ahaz trusts God so little, he's going to walk into the temple and take all the gold and all the silver and bribe a bloke who doesn't even believe in the same God, the right God, the only God, to save him. He's going to use God's money to pay someone who doesn't believe in God to deliver him the way only God can. He's already decided to trust 
the wrong person. The third lesson is about trust. Going back to verse 9, the second half of verse 9, when he's told about this future hope, do not fear. God says to Ahaz, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. All he needs to do is not pay off an enemy to save him. He's simply trusting God to save him. Faith is all that's needed. He's already decided to trust the wrong person. Misplaced faith is dangerous. I heard a story many years ago, and I'm sure I've told this a lot of times as well, um, of a climber who climbed a building. And as he got nearer the top, the sun began to go down. It would get darker and darker and darker. And he struggled to find a place to put his hands and to climb up to the top. He was already committed. He had to keep going. And then just when he neared the top, he fell unexpectedly and hit the floor. And when they opened his hand, they found a cobweb. And what they suspect happened was he saw what he thought was a crack, reached out, put his whole faith in what wasn't there, and then fell to his death. Misplaced faith is extremely dangerous. And that's what Christmas is about, isn't it? Who do you trust, a baby in the manger or anyone else who's not him? Then there's a fourth lesson related to it, that we should trust in God alone. Now we get to verse 14, that familiar verse, and I'll read it again. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. What I love about this particular part, we've got to hear, we now understand a bit more of the background. They've rebelled against God, they've turned against God. Ahaz is full of false humility, I won't possibly do that. But yet God remains faithful to his people. And what I love is that God actually takes the initiative. You won't ask for a sign, the Lord himself will give you one. When the baby is born from the virgin, when she names him Emmanuel, that will be the sign that I'm going to deliver you. God remains faithful and takes the initiative. Chapter uh, chapter 9, verse 3, points this baby forward into the future. It says, you have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice um, in their divine plunder. But verse nine, uh, chapter 9 sorry, um, talks about the future, this future baby who will have the government on his shoulders, who will be an everlasting father, a prince of peace. This baby is clearly for them, but also for us. But God takes the initiative with Ahaz, even though he doesn't deserve it. And isn't that what God always does? You're only here this morning. I'm only here this morning. You're only watching at home this morning because God took the initiative. Make no mistake, you didn't take the first step to know Christ as your Savior. God took the first step. God always takes the first step. Our first step was to reject him. Our first step was to say, God, I hate you. I'm not interested. Our first step was apathy at best, hate and rebellion at worst. But even when we were sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for the ungodly. There are no godly people. There are only ungodly people who are yet to become godly through faith in Jesus Christ. You're not here because you took the initiative. All of us are here because God took the initiative. He took the initiative with Ahaz and Judah. He took the initiative with me and you. And then another lesson, lesson five, is that there's hope for us. Emmanuel hope. Are we not the same as Israel and Judah in this book here, in Isaiah? Are we not surrounded by enemies constantly? Can you not feel them breathing down your neck, the enemy of fear? Are you not surrounded by the enemy of guilt? Are you not surrounded by the enemy of emotional frailty and despair? Haven't we, like Judah and Ahaz, let God down time and time and time again? 
Have we not broken our promises to God that we make so earnestly every day? Lord, never again. I'm not that guy, I promise. Doesn't the potential that we feel we had in our lives feel like it's now slipped away? Do we not, like Ahaz, trust the wrong people all the time and become poorer for it? His hope is our hope. And it's still delivered by grace like it was for Ahaz. The Emmanuel was born in Bethlehem to be near the brokenhearted, to save the unsavable, to search for the lost, to stand with the rejected, to love the unlovable. What does God with us mean? The word with means guiding and helping to fulfill our calling. Not only does that baby save us, but the Emmanuel takes us and shapes us, and we finally become what we couldn't be on our own, God's people. Let's pray. Lord, we lift up, Lord, these um, verses from Isaiah, Father God, in this bigger story, Lord. And there's always so much more to think about. And Lord, we pray that you would just help us to, to ponder all that's going on, Father God, not to take one verse and only think of that. And Lord, I want to pray for anyone here this morning or watching from home, Lord, who just feels like that nation of Judah. Lord, feels like they've rejected you and, and messed it up, Lord, who feels like they're surrounded by enemies, Father God, who feels like they're enemies of their own making. Or maybe they're just enemies of somebody else's making, perhaps. It might be an emotional thing like guilt or worry or fear. It might be a spiritual thing like doubt. It might be a physical thing like an abuse or a hurt or an illness. Lord, I pray for them. I pray, Lord, that in this moment, they wouldn't spend, Lord, what you've given them on false hope. That none of us in this room, Lord, would reach out to some mere man or woman and say, help me. Lord, that we would go to you. Emmanuel, God with us, and that you would give us hope in times of hopelessness. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.